Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In this episode of Pebble in the Pond, Alistair Carmichael, Associate Partner at McKinsey and Company and a leader of the People and Organisational Performance Practice, chats with us about turning the post-pandemic tide of employee burnout and the critical role and time for leaders. Alistair shares insights from what McKinsey is seeing in Australia and around the world, how work is and will change into the future and what this all means for workplace mental health. We chat about the why and how, and if we're, to, if we're to turn back the tide on employee mental ill health, leaders must act starting today. Tune in now. Alistair, welcome and thanks very much for joining us and sharing your story and insights with our listeners. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Mate, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today. So I'm McKinsey. I'm an expert associate partner within our organization practice, our people and organizational performance practice, and, and I've come to that through a few different lives before McKinsey. The life immediately before was as an employment industrial relations lawyer. In that work, I used to see a lot of what would happen when a workplace, its culture, its people weren't really at their best. And so when I went to leave there, I I was looking for something where I could actually seek to drive positive change. When I came came to McKinsey, one of the things that I saw so early on was the need for Australian business, Australian public and private sector, and actually globally to do more around the workplace mental health space. And that became a passion on the side of my ordinary consulting work. And over time, that's become a bigger part of what I do day to day. And now with what I do is in, in, as an expert associate partner, my practice is partially around traditional organisational consulting and partly around workplace mental health. And so was it like an awareness that you sort of all of a sudden started noticing that workplace and mental health in the workplace was need to be something that needed to be prioritized and you felt like it wasn't so you want to do something about it or was it an experience you went through what what really drove you towards that passion it's more the experience so okay. i come to this for lived experience of mental health challenges in, including in the workplace and yes. so i've seen different how different organizations have have approached this and what i've seen over time was that often they're approaching it with with the right intent but not necessarily with the right support services, the right knowledge and the right cultural support. And, and so in seeing that, then 
that drove, I, I designed and set up McKinsey's internal workplace mental health program, which is now started in Australia and is now global across 34,000 people. It's called My Matters. Wow. And that was in part a recognition of all of the amazing things that we were already doing, but we needed to actually get it, make sure it was tightly connected to evidence, but also that it was, it was well known and was being used. So was this something that was, the model was created from scratch or adopted from other practice? Well, it was informed by other practice. Okay. I, I think I had the, had the, the benefit of in previous life having a science background of actually getting back to the, the actual base literature on it and looking at the work of Black Dog Institute and Beyond Blue and SANE and various others and academics as well and looking at what was out there and using that to then inform what we, we, was, we were then doing. Tell me about employee burnout and the role of leaders in, in that process. Employee burnout is a major challenge for us in Australia and around the world. Our recent research on the matter has shown that somewhere in the order of 28% of Australian employees are reporting signs of burnout right now. In addition, you're seeing 32% of them are reporting signs of distress and 26-27% around signs of anxiety and, and depression. So these are quite challenging numbers for any organisation. Yeah. And if an organization is facing that, and all organizations are doing, and this is research that we looked around the world, this is research that we looked at in lots of places, the, the question then comes is, well, why? Why are we seeing these things? And, and the, the, the major driver that we're seeing in Australia, well, the major two drivers are two things. One is toxic workplace behaviors, and the second is inclusivity and belonging. And these are two factors that came out very strongly in our research. They, together, they explain Somewhere in, the, somewhere in the order of about 60 to 70% of the explained variance when it comes to burnout in, in Australia. Wow. That's incredible stats, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's, it's quite striking. Yeah. And, and if you look at globally, it's somewhere in the order of one in four employees surveyed are reporting signs of burnout. Wow. And some countries are much, much worse. Australia is a little bit worse, I don't, <laughs> but yeah. it's still a challenging thing. So if, if, if I'm a leader looking at that, there's a few things that I'm going to want to do. One of them is I need to get real on, is this actually a priority for my organization? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of organizations out there that will say it's a priority. There's a lot of leaders out there that will say it's a priority, but are they actually walking the walk? Mm. And that is where the resources are going. That is how they're making decisions. That is what they're personally measured on. Because if they're not walking the walk, is it really a strategic priority for them? And it's hard to take it to where it needs to go if it's not. Do you see a lot of people are just sort of box ticking in that respect? Do you feel like, and do you see that when, when we are doing a shift, do you think there is a shift happening where they're taking it more seriously? Absolutely. There yeah. is. Absolutely there is. I think the, in terms of people are taking it more seriously. I think what we've seen through the pandemic um, is this much increased awareness of mental health challenges and with that a desire to act. If I reflect on senior executives and boards that I deal with across the country, that workplace mental health and employee mental health is right up there top two or three risks for a large number of boards across this country now if i go back four years it wasn't the case and if it's on the board's agenda it's on the ceo's agenda too mm. wow and do you think covid obviously had a big role to play in speeding that up but tell me about covid and the relationship between employees and their work and how that's impacted them it's impacted them and covid has impacted employees in the relationships and work in a number of different ways, some positive and some negative. And if I focus in on, on three of those, the first is that employees are reevaluating their relationship with work. They're looking for more purpose. They're looking for work that is better aligned to what matters to them and their needs. And we're seeing that right across, right across the world, actually, but particularly in Australia. Mm. 
this, the second factor that you see is that a workers and employees are demanding more flexibility. And in Australia, in, a, in a, a job market where there is a real battle for talent, we're almost at full employment in the economy, people can be asking for that. And that flexibility, though, it, that flexibility is becoming is one of the top five reasons why employees are leaving their workplaces. So it's a critical factor for them. Now, the third factor that comes in, and it's actually on the, it's a potential downside, is that providing employees support in a remote world, and I'm not talking about mental health support, but in terms of support of doing their job, is harder. So it's harder to be able to see whether or not somebody needs help. It's harder to see whether or not somebody could do with some ad hoc collaboration or coaching in a remote world. So as much as the move to hybrid, the move to flexibility through the pandemic has really accelerated, it does come through, come with a risk around providing appropriate support. Mate, it's incredible. Do you, do you feel like COVID just sped up the inevitable? Do you feel like we're heading this way anyway with regard to flexibility, working remotely, that sort of thing? Or do you feel like it, it just as a result of COVID, this is what's been thrust upon us? Whereas, or do you think we're heading down that path anyway? It largely depends on which factor. There was certain certain factors in terms of the future of work that COVID absolutely accelerated. Yeah, I don't know that there's many that it created as new. If you take about work from home, that work from home has been around for for a long period of time. We've all grappled with various iterations long before Zoom existed. Yeah. But what COVID did is showed to a lot of businesses around the world, a lot of organisations, it was possible. Yeah. So it made it real. Now you're having a bit of that pullback, that snapback, and we're navigating. So I think that one it, it became the proof that drove the action. For other things like digitization, automation, reevaluation, particularly digitization and automation, it accelerated it in that it actually broke down some barriers. If you take an example of, of an outside example, but online banking, in some, in some parts of the world, you had the over 70s were using online banking and somewhere in the order of about 5% of them would use it. Through the pandemic, it went up to 90% in a number of countries and it's come back to about 70% when the branches have reopened. It wow. causes you to think very differently if that kind of move to digitization is happening across your workforce because you need different skills and those different skills actually impact the, the workers that you have, the employees you have. It's incredible, isn't it? That I mean, that's such a big shift. Even just that example of the banking. I yeah. mean, it's sixty-five percent swing. It, it is, and and the the thing that happens with it, and this is I think where it comes home for for workplace mental health, is that if you're bringing that digitization into your workplace, and we had that before in the terms of the always-on culture around iPhones and before that Blackberries, you've got to know the risks you're bringing into your workplace, and those risks of that we all live of always being contactable need to be managed and that's going to be a battle and a challenge going forward. The, the other thing that you need to be managing is the actual workforce transition because you're going to be expecting people to behave in different roles, perform different jobs, have different skills than they maybe do today and you can either lean into that and provide the transitional support and upskilling or you can actually leave some of your people behind and leaving those people behind is not good for their mental health, it's also not good for the organisation. Yeah, reskilling, upskilling. A big part of it. It's really interesting, isn't it? Do you, do you think the attrition rate uh, of staff in companies at the moment, so we're seeing a lot of people leave what they're doing. Some people are rearranging the deck, so to speak. They're going within the industry to other organizations, but others are doing something completely different. Did we find, and was it surprising to you to find that, you know, that revaluation period during COVID when you're at home, you had all this you know, your time by yourself to have that reflection. Do you feel like that that's been one of the factors or drivers in getting people to shuffle shuffle seats and, and move? 100%. 100% yeah. it has been. 
that that space and that causing people to reevaluate because they're not surrounded by all of the workplace normal signet symbols experiences and and, mm. and the like um, and they're all, they're often not commuting anymore it's meant that there was more space to reflect the other thing that it did is that we've all gone through this significant collective trauma and as part of processing that trauma people are reflecting and, and reevaluating all manner of different parts of their life and if you look at attrition specifically, the recent research in Australia shows that somewhere in the order now, this is about a few months ago, 45% of all of employees are considering leaving within the next three to six months. And that's held through the, through the pandemic, largely since about mid-2020 when it shot up. And if you go to them and ask what actually, why, why does it matter? It's about flexibility, it's about development, and it's about control. And so the, all of those things that when we were put in a traumatic environment where we were trying to navigate day to day on what this strange world we're living in, where we needed flexibility because our lives then moved around it, you think people with childcare, mm. we, we were looking for definitely opportunities for control. You only have to look at the panic beha buying behavior around toilet paper as an example. Yeah. These are the kind of factors that are actually driving people to look at their workplace and look at whether or not they're going to stay. Now, of those 45%, that doesn't mean 45% will leave. In, in Australia, the experience yeah. is that it's at a lot less. But if someone is actively looking outside, their behaviour in the workplace is different and, and that's a challenge for all employers. And we, we are definitely seeing that war of the talent, aren't we? Because it's only, the pool's only so big and you mentioned the unemployment rate at record lows. I mean, this is – what other factors are we seeing this contribute to increase in wages, obviously? Are we seeing more people more – people dictated by the wage because uh, and this is something that you might comment on Alistair but do you feel like when people work at home it's more of a transactional so the employer needs to work harder to keep that culture to keep everybody together because if you're working at home for me you could work at home for somebody else and really you're still at home you're still doing the your, your life doesn't change too much other than remuneration or flexibility in the the work package or some other bells and whistles that go along with it. But are we seeing, do you think it's going to be tougher to try and make those employees a lot stickier? It, it will be. And it, it is harder to build and sustain a culture in a remote or a hybrid world. Yeah. And, and if you look at when you look at an employee's journey, there are certain points where it is particularly important to build those connections. And that's early on. When you think about all of the employees, think about graduates particularly who've started work in the last two years. Many of them have not worked in a traditional office type setting mm. and a traditional office type setting is more effective at building the culture in a, in a lot of cases. You can do it remotely, you can do it hybrid, but it takes real work. And the same thing is true in terms of, in terms of managing people in remote and hybrid is that the, the old management of management managed by work, walking around and going mm. and seeing if someone's working, it doesn't work in a hybrid world. And a lot of that management by walking around was also how we noticed if someone wasn't okay. So you can imagine in a remote world, it's harder to actually build the culture. It's harder to manage them and manage performance. It's also harder to notice that something's not going right. So it does take an additional real effort, it's possible, and an additional real effort to build that culture and build that management capability to support the people in the best way. Real challenge for employers because they're, like, they're just feeling their way through this, aren't they, as well, to some, to some degree about this remote working and trying to get used to it and get confidence in it. And now that they've got that, sort of confidence to some degree but they're also wanting to get people back in the office and then they're saying well hang on i'm sort of enjoying this flexibility can we can we just keep it and so you got that bit of a wrestle there between the employer and the employee but it, def it definitely feels like it shifted to the not the power but the 
you know, more, you know, the employees have more of a say in what's going on compared to what it used to be. Well, I think what you're saying though is less so about the power dynamic, but what you're saying is a lot of the managers that are grappling with this, as you say, are trying to work it out. Yeah. And they themselves are navigating through this strange and different time. They themselves are reporting signs of burnout. So their ability to navigate through is being impacted. And I, I think that's one of the things yeah. to keep in mind through all of this is that often we treat stats around burnout, stats, stats around and depression, anxiety, distress as being out there, as being others, whereas actually senior leaders are some of the ones who have, have found this the hardest. Yeah. Senior leaders who are navigating big enterprises, big public sector departments, through complex, complex times, and, and, and not just large, but large, small, medium, everything, but anything where you're responsible for the future of that organization, that's a heavy weight to be carrying. And yeah. that, that's carrying through. We're seeing the tiredness in our leaders. And there hasn't been too many examples or modeling of this, you know, going through the situation in the past. It's not like you can go back to when it happened last time. We go, oh, this is what we did. This, you know, we moved this around, we, we changed this, and, and this is how we did it. This is completely new. The playbook isn't being written. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. And and let's hope we don't again. But yeah. I mean, in our lifetime, we probably will. Who knows? We might. But that's that's right. Is that people are navigating it through? And we did see certain things through the pandemic that that worked, and we we saw people adapted because they had to. They they managed in a more, more direct manner, and we saw people experiment. And you're you're quite right that the playbooks are not written. They are well. Playbooks are not in pen, they're in pencil right now. Mm. And that's actually one of the lessons that we need to take out of the pandemic is that we can't be looking for here is the off-the-shelf answer of how to navigate it. Rather, we need to be building the skills and capability, including the resilience mm. of being able to cope with where there is no playbook. Mm. The world is not going to get slower. And, and the flexibility, isn't it? Because you look at that and what works for one company may not work for you. But secondly, what works for one employee, all of a sudden now you're sort of needing to be a little bit more flexible within your organization with different employees because their needs uh, can be very different. And so there's almost that, not the expectation, but you want to keep the staff, you want them to be happy and engaged. So there's there just seems to be a bit more uh, of that negotiation, but flexibility within, with each individual employee to try and make them happy and enjoy their work in a way that they they will flourish. And, and what that's about is being able to Give them the chance to show up as their best self and to perform. And there will be a baseline level of what people need, the foundation level. And if you take the mental health example, that is things like the right policies, EAP or, and yep. the like. You need that foundation. But the individual needs of individual workers are going to differ. You think about somebody that was in, say, in Victoria, in Melbourne, in lockdown with children, young children, carrying that and working versus somebody who was living on their own in WA and didn't face a lockdown, their needs are very different. Their experience is very different. And so the support that you provide as employer needs to be a bit different. So it's looking at across it less generally, but more into specific cohorts that, you, that you're grappling with. And that's when you can then unlock the, the performance and unlock the experience of those people. Mate, so it's an important thing. And you mentioned earlier as well, the disconnect between the employers and employees sometimes with what the employer is saying that they value for workplace mental health, but then in actual fact, what the employees really feel on the front, you know, in in their role, and and so how important is that to make sure that the employers aren't not dictating, but trying to trying to figure it out for them versus getting their buy-in and, and actually including them in, in part of the process. Employee involvement through this is is critically important, and it, 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 the 
thing is it's not just workplace mental health where employee involvement makes a big difference. We know in terms of organisational performance, strategy with high levels of employee involvement tends to be more successful. We know that that matters in terms of, in terms of culture and organisational performance through that route as well. So, but if you take about employee mental health and you say, well, we can't as leaders, as senior leaders, we cannot know every need of our people that are out there because we, we, we don't live their lives, particularly now where the blurring of work and home is so, it's so porous nowadays, that barrier. So by, by empowering people and being able to actually get understand what they need and having that open dialogue with them, you can actually come up with a better answer. And you come up with a better answer for two reasons, not just that you know what's going on for them in a new way, but you're actually empowering them to take action because they believe that you you mean it. And these are there's examples long before the pandemic of this happening. So there's examples out of uh, out of Japan with some of the automotive manufacturers that they actually went out there and said we've got major issues with overwork. We in head office have tried directing to work less. It's not working. Let's go out out there and speak to people. And when they sat down and they formed these groups of people to actually hear what was going on, not only did it come up with a whole wonderful array of effective things that improved the employee's experience it also improved performance as well yeah because right. it's the ideas that are hidden and those ideas are, will stay hidden unless we ask for them and are willing to follow through that's incredible isn't it I, I think that i mean the notion of overworking at home is so easy you mentioned that before the, the blurred line between work and and not working at home when it's so easy just to open the laptop and, and a couple of hours later you're there that's obviously one of the major contributors you think for burn leading to employee burnout working from home is that one of the major things you think is just not the inability to be able to switch off? Well, it, our, our research showed it was more so around toxic workplace behaviours and inclusion and belonging as okay. the key drivers. But if we think about our own experiences, we know that that poorest thing that, that, that of work and home, it does make it harder to, harder to switch off and to switch down. And there's a, a, a friend of mine through the pandemic that was in lockdown in New Zealand and wasn't able to transfer to, to travel across to Australia and came to present a particular room in his house because that was the room that he worked in because he didn't see anybody else for months. That's where he was working. And so there's a very human part of this of that this is contributing to our negative experience. But then it makes it important that you adopt the right rituals around it to maintain some sort of a barrier. And, and these don't have to be complicated. Things like a virtual commute of how you end your day and how you finish your day. Things of how you win, how you interact with your, with your phone or other devices in the morning or of an evening. So you actually have some of that barrier that you would have had otherwise. It, it can all help to improve experience. Alistair, McKinsey and Company, they do, you're doing a lot of stuff around the future of work. Do you have any insights as how you see work is changing, not just as a result of COVID, but into the future and, and where that's heading? There's broadly five trends that we're seeing Macro, and we've we've discussed some of them some of them already in this. Yep. One of them is people are changing their relationship with work, and that's only going to continue. So, purpose as a key factor in work, however that is defined, it's only going to become more significant, particularly when we're facing climate change and and the the rise of ESG. The second thing is this this war for talent is going to continue, but it, its battlegrounds will move. If you had looked at it and said, "Where am I going to be scarce in terms of skills and capabilities five years ago?" It was all around digital data, analytics, and those sort of things, and we're facing that right now. But if you look into the into the world five years, ten years time, the skills that become particularly scarce are actually some softer things like like empathy, like a lot of the human things, human skills that are really important. Creativity, creativity, critical innovation. thinking. Yeah. So those things are only going to become more significant. The third thing is the actual the 
the value of good leadership is only going to go up because the complexity that we're navigating now, now let, let's hope we don't have another pandemic, but the mm. complexity we're having, navigating now, the speed of society, the speed of life is only going to increase. And that puts more pressure on our leaders and we can't just keep putting more on their shoulders and saying, here's something else you have to deal with. But the good leadership becomes even more important and how we as organisations support people to become good leaders. The, f- the fourth and fifth trends that we do see are around digitization and automation. Digitization, it, it, we're, we're seeing a massive uptick in individual consumers' expectations around digitization and the potential of what can be done. And that's only going to accelerate. And that does require new skills in a workplace and then the, uh, new skills and new approaches. And then the fifth is around automation. The, we've heard this for years about we're investing in automation, we're investing in automation. The, the technology and the affordability that technology is catching up such that automation will continue to be a big theme. And that's likely to lead to big swings in terms of workforce. It's incredible, isn't it, how fast, I guess, we've gone, if you look back over the last couple of decades to get to where we are. But the fact that it's going to speed up and continue to develop and and progress is, you know, I guess part of that unknown, that uncertainty around the future. But it it can be quite daunting, can't it? The certainty, I think, here now and going forward is uncertainty. Yeah. So if there's one skill that I was going to, that I would be building in people, it's the tolerance of uncertainty. Yes because this is not going to go away. Now, you can't make people so resilient that they can deal with anything when no one is a superhuman out there, but tolerance of uncertainty is really important. And the investment in leadership you're, you're mentioning as well to deal with all this absolutely is going to be a, quite a, a good investment, you think, moving forward? Investing in leadership such that people can elevate their soft skills, and this is leadership at all levels. Yeah. It's not viewing leadership as the top couple of levels in an organisation, but it's all of the leadership. It's your ability to get the most out of people and yourself in a way that actually inspires them and allows them to connect into purpose. If we talk about workplace mental health, so on one hand, you want to have psychological safety, you want to have you know, a good culture where, where everyone you know, gets along and, and they respect each other. But if we look at going towards well-being, what are some of the key things that we're seeing because a few years ago, which gave rise to this workplace and well-being, workplace mental health workplace conference, was when I spoke to a couple of corporates and they said, you know, we, we not only want to get the policies right around workplace mental health, but a big part of this is also to be the employer of choice. So for people to want to come and work for us, what could we put in place from the positivity, prevention, well-being space to make us, oh, I've got, I want to go. It's not just, it's not just the compensation. It's not just that, but it's also... The other stuff they're doing that they care more about me than just my nine to five, what I'm doing and my outcomes are, but but they seem to be caring more holistically about me as an employee and trying to use that as a reason to attract talent. Tell us about the importance of the well-being and, and using those tools and what sort of tools they are. And, and it's something actually even through the pandemic, it's accelerated that the thing about changing relationship, where that where that comes to life for an employer is employee value proposition. So in actually thinking very carefully and in a nuanced way about what is it that you are offering to your employees, both your future employees and your current employees that, that will keep them there. And so if you're thinking about from a, from a workplace mental health perspective, what that isn't is that it isn't the, all of the programs that you're offering. As is in the research that we did recently, so one of the senior leaders in the US talked to us about the fact that you can't yoga your way out of this problem right now. It's not just programs. It's actually thinking holistically across your workplace for how do you actually allocate work? 
How, what sort of culture are you building? What sort of structure you have in place and do you have the right sort of support and growth opportunities? What sort of talent are you hiring and what skills do you require? Those, all those factors come together in terms of your operating model. That, that is absolutely critical when it comes to workplace mental health. Now, that's not something that you can then put on a brochure that an employee sees it, but that is the something that gets talked about by the employee. It doesn't, it, 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 in a large way, it doesn't matter what's on the shiny brochure if the experience is different. So if you're actually experience, if you're investing in getting the experience right, that's the thing that will then sell the, sell the organisation. Mm-hmm. And the opposite, of course, is true. But we do see with employers that, that have gone the other way, which is where you'd asked about box ticking, of where they're doing it because somebody has told them that's the right thing to do. And employees see straight through that. And employees outside see straight through that. So it's that genuine commitment to this across your operating model makes a big difference. Do you, do you think, and I know there are some stats around the return on investment with this, with employees, but do you think people or organisations that aren't putting the resources into this are completely missing the point and the fact that it's actually going to be quite beneficial for them in the long run? You just look at the Productivity Commission and what they came out with. The yeah. Productivity Commission is, was what $17 billion Australian dollars in presenteeism, presenteeism and absenteeism. And if anything, that's an underestimate because it misses the whole positive upswing in performance of an engaged, mentally healthy workforce. So it's a significant cost. And yet the, the individual programs and, and individual profiles of work, the, the investment on them is somewhere north of $4 for every dollar spent, which is much better than the return on investment of most investments that most corporates make. So th- there, is, it, there is a significant upside in getting this right. And with employees being able to vote with their feet, the cost of getting it wrong will flow through both in the direct cost of people walking out the door, but also in the indirect costs in terms of lost productivity. Yeah, I'm training up new staff and all that sort of stuff. It's one of those things, how do you get that lead? Because it's important to get that leadership buy-in. What's the biggest challenge when trying to present this? Is it trying to get in front of the right person? Is it trying to convince them that this is something that they should be going after? Or is it just an awareness thing? Is it showing them the cost of not doing it? What, what's the way we can, the organisations who haven't yet taken this seriously, what do you think is holding that back? I think it's going to be all of those things depending on the organisation. Okay. So some of it is for some leaders, they get it, but they just don't know what to do. For other leaders, they get it, but they think they're already doing it, but it's somebody, somebody often level five somewhere over there. thing that I would be doing is actually trying to get in front of the most senior leaders and understanding, one, making sure they understand it, and then two, are they, are they really going to make this a strategic priority in the same way as they, as they do in terms of their financial well-being, as they do in terms of their operational well-being? Because if we're going to go out there and say that our people are our greatest asset and we're not going to invest in their, in their mental health, well, then we're not being true to what we're saying there. And we're all going to, not just, not just that organisation, but society more generally is going to pay the price. Alistair, as we look to a couple more questions, organisation design, how's that changing moving forward? Do we, are we going to see a bit of a change in how, how companies are structured in the future? Tell us a little bit about that. We have over the last few years, there's been this move to more cross-functional teams and more agile ways of working. And, and agile's been bags and t-shirts, despite what, what people associate it with tech startups. We have seen that in a lot of industries, including from very heavy industry, banks, banks, telcos, public service. It's 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 very broad in where that's gone. And we do expect to see more cross-functional working, more dynamic forms of work, because it's better able to deal with the uncertainties of, of the worlds that we live in. And a key part of that more agile way of working is a more agile structure. That doesn't mean to say that you're more, you 
the traditional org structures are gone, they will continue and they absolutely have their place. But yes, we are seeing more cross-functional working. And, and what excites you most about the future as it relates to workplace? It's a good question. Look, I think the what I see now that I didn't see four years ago is a collective commitment across all levels to drive change, positive change around workplace mental health. I know four or five years ago when I was speaking to senior leaders, I would get, yeah, I know it's important, but we're working on that. Now, now there's rooms full of people like the like today yeah. who are passionate about it. They're committed. They've got the organisational buy-in. The CEOs are sitting there and they're talking about this. They're not sure what to do, but they're talking about this. So I think it's that collective commitment to do something better and acknowledgement that maybe we can't, maybe we can actually do something special here. I agree with that, and I think it is exciting with where things are heading. The fact that people are now not only taking it seriously, but prioritizing it and spoken about it at board levels and, and obviously with the CEOs and stuff, which is really important. Tell us, Alistair, how can people get in touch with you if they want to hear more? The best place to connect is via LinkedIn. Yep. And certainly feel free to get in contact with me on LinkedIn or, or by email or however suits. Perfect. Anything you want to mention in closing? Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. Mate, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much for sharing your story and made incredible. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.